Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Okay, well, the Agents of Innovation podcast has now come to Guatemala City, and I'm here at Jake's Restaurant with the chef and owner, Jake Denberg. Jake, uh, welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Glad to be here. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you. Uh, also, Jake is the owner of Jake's New York uh, Pizza and Burgers restaurants, which uh, there's one right next door here. We're in La Estacion in Zone 10, and there's also one in Cayala up in Zone 16. Zone 16, and we're here at the Jake's restaurant in La Estacion, which was founded 34 years ago. Now, um, I think we can say that Jake grew up with two palettes, uh, one for cooking and one for art, right? And so, uh, Jake, I want to get into a little bit more of your story. Uh, while we're here in Guatemala, uh, you are not from Guatemala. You're also from the United States like me, but you came here. When did you come here? I came in March of 1983. And uh, I know you were born in New Jersey? Born in New Jersey, lived in New Jersey, New York. So I consider myself a, a New Yorker. And... Uh, I came here in 1983 after having two restaurants in uh, St. Thomas in the Caribbean. Oh, wow. Um, so, Jake, let's go back to the beginning of Jake Denberg's life very early on. Um, what was your first job in life? My first job was in a Chinese takeout, and that lasted about two days. Chinese takeout lasted two days. Why did it last two days? Well, there was a uh, the owner was this or the wife was, of course, Chinese. And um, she, I was in charge of packing the bags for takeout, for delivery, and she kept screaming at me. <laughs> <laughs> she was there, one bag of Lulu, one bag of Lulu, one bag of Lulu. I had no idea what she was screaming. She was like the dragon lady. So, uh, you know, the second day I ran out, I was 11 years old, basically, you know, in tears. And it wasn't until, I don't know how many years later, 50 years later, uh, opening my Chinese restaurant, I finally realized, which is called J.K. Ming, I finally realized what she was saying was one bag of noodles. <laughs> Those are the crispy noodles that always put into your takeout bag. One bag of Lulu that I kept forgetting to put in. So I had named the plate on that menu called one bag Lulu. And that, where was that plate? Is it at this restaurant or your first? No, it was at a restaurant called J.K. Ming, which was over in Fontebella. Ah, very uh, nice. Opened in 2008. So for those that are not from Guatemala City, Fontebella is about a five or ten minute walk from where we're sitting right now. And uh, Jake, what, so what, uh, how old were you when you had that job at the Chinese restaurant? Eleven years old. Eleven years old. What motivated you to work at eleven years old? Well, uh, I wanted certain things. Uh, basically, I wanted a, a leather jacket. And at 11 years old, I was also growing like six inches a, a year. And my father said, no. <laughs> uh, at 11 years old, you don't get a leather jacket. I think at the time, it, the value was like $40 for a leather jacket. And I was 11 years old, so he said no. So I got a job and bought it myself. Very nice. Um, so uh, now my understanding is your parents passed away when you were a teenager, is that right? Yes, early teens. 
Yeah, and so uh, tell me a little bit about your family's history. I know you had. Oh, where where was your where did your family originate from? Well, uh, my mother's side, uh, my mother was first generation American. Her parents came from Russia in 1913. My father's side, they were from Holland. Um, I'm fifth generation American, so they were here in the 1800s. Mother's family, they, my grandfather was a farmer in Russia, came here, had a horse farm, then started chicken farms and live chicken markets, where you could go into the market, pick out your pick out your chicken and 20 minutes later it would be all freshly slaughtered and dressed and my father's family had a bakery since the 1800s called Denberg's Modern Bakery in the late 1800s and early 1900s actually I've seen a photograph of the delivery truck in 1904 with my grandfather sitting as a little boy and it said eat Jacob Denberg's bread on the side of the truck. Ah, very nice. Um, well, uh, my understanding, uh, so what else did you learn about uh, from your family members? I know you, you had mentioned to me before, uh, just kind of observing, you know, your grandparents, your parents, your, your uncles, uh, some of their hard work ethics. Uh, what did you learn yeah, from them? Yeah, basically that was it. I mean, everybody worked. Uh, they had their own businesses. They're entrepreneurial. Uh, the family from Russia, my mother's side, they came without a nickel in their pocket. My grandmother told me that they made $3.50 a month when I came to New York. And out of that $3.50 a month, they saved money to buy a farm. So there was tremendous work ethic. My father was uh, originally a medical uh, student and then went to school to run the, uh, it was not a small bakery, it was a plant, it was a wholesale uh, baking operation. It was Eastern European rye bread, pumpernickel, the Eastern European Jewish bread that supplied the whole tri-state area in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. All the delis had Denberg's bread. We can pan later, show you the, I have a bag that's framed from circa 1960s of the the bag from the rye bread. Wow, you still have it? It's right over here on the wall. Oh, wow, amazing. We'll have to check that out. Well, Jake, I understand that uh, at 17 years old, you went to uh, the School of Visual Arts and I received did. a scholarship. Is that in New York City? That's in New York City, School of Visual Arts. Uh, at that point, was not a four-year uh, college. It was an art school, professional art school. Um, I went there under scholarship. Uh, I went to an arts high school. I've been an artist my whole life, visual and culinary. So, yeah, that's interesting because I think when a lot of people think of art, you know, they think of paintings on the wall. Maybe they think of people doing uh, creative arts like music or things like that, but, uh, but food and cooking is certainly an art as well. Oh, absolutely. Um, I basically have uh, two talents that aid me well in both arts, um, sort of perfect color retention, color memory, and also taste memory. So if I see something, a color that I liked, or a taste that I liked, I can reproduce it at a later time. So it sounds like um, in your early age, you actually, or at least in your family's history, there was a lot of people involved in different elements of, uh, of, of the food industry, baking, cooking, things like that. But when you were 17, you decided to go to art school, visual arts. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what, were, what was your thinking or your ambitions at the time? Well, my ambition, I had a, I had a, a cousin, uh, 
a close cousin of my mother who worked for a publishing company that published all the art books for the Museum of Modern Art. And I used to get it every time they, they printed, my cousin would give me them. And from an early age, my ambition was to be in a permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And at 23, that dream was realized. My work was bought by the museum and incorporated into the print department, the bookworks collection in the print department. It was a photography book. Wow, so that photography book uh, was entered into the Museum of Modern Art in New into York City. Into a permanent collection. Wow, it's very nice. And I know I've, I've seen here, over here on the wall, you actually have, uh, what is that over there that's framed? Well, ba basically, uh, to, to get a little personal, my second wife, I think, ripped up the letter <laughs> of acceptance to the Museum of Modern Art out of spite. And so for all these years, I have a copy of the book but I lost all documentation that the book was actually in a permanent collection in the Museum of Modern Art. Here in Guatemala, I met a, a woman that was in the consular section of the American Embassy, and her twin sister came down to Guatemala, who I met, and we went down to the beach, all of us together, and she, lo and behold, she worked for the Museum of Modern Art. She was in charge of the um, the diplomatic section where if you came from China or Guatemala, wherever, and you wanted to open a modern museum in your country, she wouldn't give you full instructions. So I asked her, please find out where my book is, and voila, it's, the, it's on the wall exactly in what shelf and what part of the museum of the Museum of Modern Art. So uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, so if anybody's here in Guatemala City, uh, coming to Jake's restaurant, when you come in, you just make a, a left like you're going to the bathroom, and you can see this on the wall there. Um, now, Jake, uh, a couple things about that time during visual art school. Uh, one, I know you were married uh, the, for the first time at, at the age of 18, but also you mentioned to me before that you lived in a um, creative apartment building uh, during that time. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that impacted you? Well, it was in a little on the outskirts of Soho, but the building was, it was the Lower East Side, and almost everybody in the building was young and had some connection to the arts, music, film, uh, museums. Actually, my, one of my neighbors, his name was Earl Hedelberg, he was a curator at the Museum of Modern Art, and he explained to me how they start looking at new artists. Um, so he instructed me to take photographs and mail the photographs to the curators. And if they see something they like, they actually make a file and drop your, your photograph into that file. Wow. And after you keep sending more and more work, and they keep depositing into your file in their filing cabinet, they, they may say one day, hey, wait a minute, this guy's, let's take a look at this a little further. And I guess that's what helped me get into the Museum of Modern Art in the print department, the permanent collection, at 23 years old. You know, one of the things, uh, as I study innovation more and even talk to my students uh, about innovation, one thing you learn is how important collaboration is. And it seems like when you're, you, when you're in a place like that, you're living with all these other creatives and people kind of have their own different focuses that you, you know, that, that then lends that opportunity for you to be, you know, in a sense, discovered or uh, at least your, your profile elevated because somebody had that connection to the Museum of Modern Art. Well, that's uh, one term that uh, the famous Deepak Chopra coined was synchrodestiny. 
everything happens in your life at the, at the opportune moment to advance your life, advance a project. So things come out of the blue, you never expect it, but you have to uh, sort of live mentally a quiet, a quiet life mentally, meaning not too much interference in your brain, and uh, leave the universe to do its, its work while you prepare, and that's uh, what I mentioned before, uh, preparation meeting opportunity, which is what you call luck. Yeah. So I prepared my whole life up to that point, my whole life being 23 years, but I worked actively as an artist every day of my life, and uh, and then I met somebody who gave me a tip on how to do something, and it, re and it turned out to fulfill a, a lifelong dream, lifelong of 23 years. Yeah, I mean, lifelong dream. A lot of people will go decades longer than you to get uh, a piece of uh, work into the Museum of Modern Art, and what I mean, what an accomplishment that is at any point in life to be able to, to accomplish it at 23, that's amazing. So you get that at 23, you're obviously good at photography too, and then you, you, you have this uh, photo book uh, be entered into the Museum of Modern Art. When did you make the transition from art to cooking, uh, especially professionally? Well, I never made the transition. Uh, cooking was always part of my life. My grandmother was an incredible uh, Russian cook, uh, Eastern European Jewish style cooking. And uh, so we ate very well. We ate a lot of chicken because my grandfather was in the chicken business. But she was an incredible cook, and we had our Sabbath dinner every week with the whole family, uncles, aunts, cousins. Uh, we always ate in the kitchen with my grandmother serving us. I lived in a neighborhood of uh, basically all Italians and Jews, and so some of our neighbors were Italian from the other side, and I knew where to eat. So I always hung out in, in their homes and uh, I learned as much as I could about cooking. So my life was always involved in, you know, in the food business and art. Uh, all through high school, which was a uh, private, uh, was called uh, Arts High School in Newark, New Jersey. It was the predecessor of um, the school that was, uh, what was it called, Performing Arts in New York where fame was filled. So this was like the first um, art high school in the United States. And so uh, somebody will pick up the phone in a minute, hopefully. <laughs> well, we're in a working restaurant. Uh, you know, the, the, we're here in the morning uh, before the customers arrive, but this place is usually hopping. So, uh, so we're going to be hopping through the, the rest of the interview here now. And Jake. they've already passed three, uh, the limit of three rings on the phone where it has to be answered. <laughs> so uh, somebody's going to be in trouble after this podcast. Well, uh, Jake, tell us, uh, so you're in uh, New York City. When, first of all, when did you go um, from just cooking to being you know, head chef to being restaurant owner? Did that happen here or did it happen before you got well, to Well, no, uh, that not, didn't happen until I moved to St. Thomas. Um, I had a friend that was already in the restaurant business in St. Thomas. Had an established restaurant, mostly West Indian food out of a steam table. We did like 400 lunches. And, a day plus dinner and so we I came down to St. Thomas decided to stay there and we opened up the second floor fine dining quote-unquote fine dining um, I was a, and so we had uh, two young chefs from the CIA hotshot chefs graduated not chefs but they were hotshot cooks and uh, the day before Christmas which was the busiest week of the whole year I came into the restaurant 
and they were gone. What they left behind in their apartment was bottles of uh, Cristal champagne and lobster shells. I later found out that they were hired by the Shah of Iran's widow and to cook for her for two weeks in the Caribbean on vacation at St. Thomas, um, promising them fantastic salary. They could work in Paris or London, wherever they wanted. And when she went home, she dumped them. Uh, I never gave them a job, but of course I wouldn't hire them back after leaving. I had to close the restaurant for two weeks, called a friend in New York who was uh, in, a, in the food business, Italian food, I told him, pack a container, come down, and all of a sudden, I had to cook for a restaurant. My, my friend Buddy and I, we had to cook together. And it was quite a, quite a harrowing experience because the, the first night it was all these nefarious Italian guys from New York and they wanted their Italian food. So um, that was my first night cooking. And so that's where I started cooking. Apart from as a kid, cooking in a, a luncheonette counter, which is highly haute cuisine, uh, but that was my first restaurant was in St. Thomas. Very nice. So, Jake, so you had this incredible experience going down, uh, being a head chef uh, in St. Thomas, the U.S. Virgin Islands. I've been there. Beautiful place. And uh, this must have been in the 1970s or something? It was 1980. I was not a chef. I was a chief cook and bottle washer basically yeah well there's a lot yeah, yeah there's a lot of a lot of times you got to be the chief cook and bottle but washer. all those years with uh, hanging out with these italian uh ladies where i grew up came in handy because i could cook home style italian cooking very nice i'm sure that got you a lot of dates um well jake tell us about your experience coming to guatemala what uh when did you come and what brought you here well, I came in 1983, March of 1983. Uh, I, was, I had it with um, St. Thomas, so I decided to uh, leave. I sold out my share of the restaurant, but I didn't want to go back to New York. So I hadn't seen my brothers in quite a few years, probably 10, 12 years. Two brothers? I have two brothers that are still here in Guatemala. And so I called my uncle and said, where are my brothers? He said, they're in Antigua. This is in the days before email or cell phones. Yeah, you yeah. have to make a long-distance call on a rotary phone, dialing and dialing <laughs> and dialing. Anyway, uh, he told me they were in Antigua. I thought it was Antigua in the Caribbean, so I almost went there, but it was Antigua, Guatemala. So I went to the States. I visited my aunt and uncle, who sort of had adopted us. He dropped off some things with them and flew down to Guatemala to see my brothers, and, um, and that was it, never left. Uh, my brothers were starting a, uh, a textile factory, which is now one of the top uh, factories for handmade rugs. They're not typical, they're uh, designer, they're designed by the top interior decorators in the world. They've wow. done very well, uh, they're very renowned, and. But I wanted to get back into the restaurant business and to paint. So I left after three years and came down to the city, started painting. And then... Uh, when you say painting, do you mean painting houses or painting like uh, artistic... No, painting paintings. Okay. Art paintings. <laughs> so uh, I scratched together enough, uh, enough money to put together an eight-table, 32-seat restaurant. Hardly a restaurant at that point. It was called uh, Jules and Jim. It was uh, based off uh, 
the story, the script of, of Truffaut about two friends. One friend was always crashing the other, the other uh, friend's house with his wife, so he would eat over my house every day. And he said, hey, let's open up a tea house. And that was 1986, which I thought was a crazy idea, but he was a clothing designer. And uh, he said, all the women will come and, and drink tea and have tea sandwiches and buy my clothing and buy your paintings. So we did it. It lasted about four months. I closed it down, opened Jake's in 1988, February 15th. And when you opened Jake's in 1988, was it, was it the Jake's right down the street where you Yeah, know, where it was in an old farmhouse down the street, about three blocks away. And uh, it was rather a very quaint little house. Yeah, and tell us, uh, how, when you opened that, um, what kind of investment did you have to make to open it, and how many employees did you have at the beginning? Well, I opened it for $17,000. I had one girl just got out of college or cooking school uh, at a dishwasher and two waiters. Wow. Uh, so today, how many employees do you have? Uh, between the three restaurants, uh, probably about 70. About 70 employees. Well, that's a lot of growth in, uh, in that time. Now, Jake, when you arrived in Guatemala, it was 1983. This country was in the middle of a civil war that had been going on since the 1960s. They didn't sign the peace accords to 1996. What were your observations then about Guatemala, and what can you tell us about Guatemala today? How has it, how has it changed? Well, uh, when I got to Guatemala, it was, pretty, it was pretty rustic, I'd have to say, to put it mildly. On the food scene, there was nothing imported. So literally, it was farm to table. And it's still farm to table here. Actually, what I'm working on right now is finding local purveyors because of the, um, the, the flow of products around the world, and especially the United States, which we've always been importing a lot of products from. Um, I don't want to be caught up depending on imported meat, imported this, and imported that. So I'm finding the best purveyors throughout Central America um, but going back to going back to the 80s, it was pretty rough here. Um, if you wanted to cook something, you went to the market and you made your own pasta. You made everything from scratch. So we designed basically a, a formal French setup in the kitchen. We were sauciers and always fresh product, fresh seafood, fresh meat. So that was the reality in Guatemala, and it's still basically reality. Where an agricultural uh, country. But Guatemala was pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Uh, I had a bunch of friends. We all had four-wheel drive vehicles. We'd pack up our, um, our Jeeps with food and liquor for two weeks and take off, basically rum, uh, the Guatemalan rum. And we'd take off for two weeks and go to the end of the road where it stopped. And uh, I think over the years, I was caught by the, the Guatemalan guerrillas three times. I uh, basically asked to make sandwiches for them, and uh, nothing serious happened. Uh, they didn't want to really want to bother with us much. Yeah, well, that's good. I'm, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you stayed safe and you're still with us today. Uh, Jake, what has been um, your biggest contribution 
to Guatemala's culinary scene? Well, I guess my biggest contribution is I brought in uh, what is called now fusion, uh, bringing other cultures into Guatemala. When I came to Guatemala, there was uh, there were a handful of restaurants, uh, you might say high-end restaurants. One was by Belgian guys, another French guy, which eventually I bought his restaurant. Uh, basically, there was, I don't know, maybe five or six restaurants. And um, it was uh, a brave new world here. There was uh, not much going on in the culinary scene. So I started bringing in um, my experience all over the world at that point, which many people didn't have in Guatemala. But then in 1996, so I really began the, the, the fusion cuisine in Guatemala. And then in 1996, after the peace was, the peace court was signed, you started having tremendous um, investment by foreigners in Guatemala. So they would come in and it was always the foreigners that appreciated most my cooking. Uh, I guess anywhere you are, local people take for, for granted what you're doing. And, and then their counterparts here of these these foreign investment would start traveling back to Germany, to Spain, to Brazil, and start experiencing the, the real explosion of fusion cooking in the 90s all over the world. And so my business in 1996, with the advent of the Peace Accord, grew 25% a year. We doubled our business. Wow. And the most, I think it was the most prosperous time in Guatemala. Is that, you think that's just because people, uh it was it was it was more peaceful. I mean, people could go out and about and, and enjoy life well, a little bit more. The, I remember the times being more peaceful was at the time when the military was still in control here. Uh, but things were exploding. Guatemala, tons and tons and tons and tons of visiting businessmen investing in Guatemala, and then later on, back I guess around 2006 or 2007, there was a. Uh, a, the the Olympic convention to who was going to host the which became the Sochi Olympics in Russia mm. and so we had like 6,000 dignitaries from all over the world I had in my restaurant you know um, I won't say names but we had royalty from England we had royalty from the Middle East it was fantastic. It was a really well, exciting time. Even there. even the uh, the kings and queens and all the royals know that when they're in Guatemala City, they must come to Jake's, right? Absolutely. <laughs> There's no other place to go. Well, uh, Jake, um, you know, you mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago about the. You, you sort of alluded to the supply chain issues happening right now, especially uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic started. It's happening all over the world. The United States is affected by it. Um, and you mentioned that when, I guess, I guess prior to COVID, it sounds like, probably like a lot of other places, you relied on or, you know, just getting a lot of your food and agriculture and other types of things, uh, other types of supplies from, from many places around the world, probably, you know, the best of the best, wherever you could find it. But uh, I, uh, I remember you uh, recently, we were talking, and uh, I think this is what you were alluding to a few minutes ago, um, 
you kind of then had to search interior in Guatemala and in Central America to find more of the resources here. Can you tell us a little bit about how the supply chain has uh, affected your restaurant and also uh, where you're now getting a lot of your uh, resources? Well, we do import uh, some products. I I import salmon from Alaska. that was probably held up politically. Um, I can't get too far into that. Uh, they were not allowing the Alaskan salmon to be exported to Latin America. I think this was a political decision. But anyway, um, like things, I mean, like spare ribs I would get from, from the U.S., Smithfield spare ribs. There's a lot of different things that we would get from Spain, from Europe, olive oil. I have my pizza sauce manufactured for me in Spain, according to my recipe. That was held up for three months, so which was not a big deal. We have tomatoes, we have spices, we have olive oil, so we produced our own, uh, you know, sauce on a daily basis. But there's um, all the prices are going up, and that is going to affect dining out. I mean, in the states, prices are already extremely high for. I mean, three, four years ago for beef, of course, it's $60 for a prime piece of beef in a steakhouse in Morton's or the Palm, wherever. Now, I think uh, meat is up like 30%. So it's like we're suffering from, a re- I mean, besides the pandemic, the political fallout of the pandemic is, is just terrible for entrepreneurs. Um, if you're an entrepreneur in China, you're probably—I I, I wasn't going to get into politics, but you'll probably be doing a lot better off than you are an entrepreneur in in the U.S. But uh, it's going to be a while, and so I have my farm, my cattle farm in Nicaragua, which is the best meat I've ever had. I found a local mom-pop uh, dairy farm that's making me incredible butter. Uh, my fish is is uh, from the south coast. So basically, we're apart from my salmon, which my clients miss a lot. Uh, we're not we're not doing badly because I never rest. I mean, I don't sleep much. I think I wake up and uh, think about okay, so how we're going to resolve everything today? It's a lot more problem uh, resolution where my clients never feel it. Uh, so we lost salmon. Somebody was growing great trout here in Guatemala, so we put trout on. Um, reaching out to fishermen and getting more fish. So now there's more species of fish available at the restaurant than probably any other restaurant in Guatemala. So, you know, during the pandemic, instead of sitting home and, you know, wringing our hands, we installed a uh, state-of-the-art air conditioning system with HEPA filters and UV tubes. We fixed our pergolas or patios outside where we knew people were going to want to sit outside, not inside. So, um, you know, I love the, 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 the quote from Elon Musk, you know, I've worked 16 hours, uh, 16 years, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and people call me lucky. No, we're not lucky. We just go to work when, they, you know, when a crap hits the fan, you go to work. You know, we're yeah. literally taking lemons and making lemonade here. Yeah, it sounds a lot like you, what you just described. I mean, you're you're the restless entrepreneur, right? You're just continuing. Yeah, you never to, stop. To always yeah. innovating and uh, always looking for a better way, better experience with the clients. Uh, 
that's been the core of my business is hospitality. That's the core of the restaurant business. So we're hospitable. Uh, we take care of our clients. We anticipate what they want. So we're always, you know, we, we try to keep, you know, at least one step ahead of everybody. So, Jake, you know, speaking of being a restless entrepreneur, uh, I was sitting over here with you uh, maybe about two months ago. We were sitting down having some lunch, and it was, it's been great getting to know you during my time in Guatemala. And um, one of the things you told me is you, you said um, how business, in business and entrepreneurship, uh, there's no difference between the giver and the receiver. Uh, I don't know if you remember saying this, but no, it, it struck me. Saying. And uh, I was just curious what you, what you meant by that. Well, it, it goes, you know, philosophically speaking, it goes way past, I mean, the restaurant. It's basically, it, it's a, uh, a dictum of life. Um, you know, I, I study Eastern philosophy and, you know, and, you know I read a lot. And uh, I, I, read, uh, I read about the definition of karma. Uh, definition of karma, it's not like if you do this, this happens. It's not that simple. It's respecting, respecting other people. If you if you want friendship, be a friend. If you want love, give love. If you want money, help other people. So, when you there's also a book I would recommend. It's called The Power of Moments. When you g give something to someone, give them great service in a restaurant. Bring them something they weren't expecting. I just came out with my Jake steak sauce. So um, they didn't order it, but I put it on the table. Here, try this. See if you like it. Or we bake our own bread, and somebody says, oh, wow, I love this bread, Jake. Well, so I get a little bag and put a bread in and give it to the client. So it's like creating a moment they don't forget. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting all the, the little kids now asking to come to Jake's because we, my niece bakes some incredible, they're called brookies, they're brownies and cookies. So if the kid eats well, he behaves as well, I give him a cookie. And so they're asking to come into the restaurant. So basically, you know, giving is receiving. There's no, there's no difference in the act of receiving or giving. And if you go deep into a ph philosophical, um, you can't have one without the other. So. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm, I live in Orlando uh, normally when I'm not living in Guatemala. <laughs> and, uh, uh, of course, everybody knows Orlando for Walt Disney World. I once worked there when I was in college. And one of the things they teach uh, people that work there, by the way, they don't call Disney um, employees. They don't call them employees. They call them cast members, right? Uh, and so everybody's a cast member. It doesn't matter if you're a character or if you're just somebody running the rides or if you're sweeping the floor. You're a cast member. Uh, so it's it's part of the philosophy of, of making sure everybody's aware that you're putting on a show. For, and, and by the way, the, the customers, they don't call them customers. They call them guests mm -hmm. because they're a guest in your house. They're not, a, you know, they're not somebody that, that's just paying here. They're, they're, you want to welcome them like a guest. But one of the things Disney imparts on their cast members uh, right at the beginning when you start working there is this idea of creating magic moments, magical moments. Um, it could be you know, just helping a family, get, you know, whatever, doing whatever. It's also, they have this idea called guest recovery. And so, for example, if I'm sitting here as a cast member and I, I look over and about 30 feet away, I see, you know, a, a little kid, they just got their Mickey ice cream cone and all of a sudden they drop it on the ground. Well, I'm instructed in some ways to go walk right up to them and say, hey, I'm sorry that happened to you. Let me get you another one. 
right? And so that's just the way that Disney says you want to have a guest recovery and something that's unexpected. And then, you know, you mentioned the cookie that you gave to the little kids. I can remember uh, for those who are from Florida or the southeast, you might know public supermarkets. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's the greatest grocery store known to mankind. Uh, But when the bakery, I think still to this day, at least when I was a kid, they would give you if you were just uh, shopping with your parents and you went up to the bakery, they would give you a complimentary cookie. Uh, and, and again, it's one of those things that it's just it's a it's a memorable experience. It's a moment, right? Mm-hmm. That you, you're talking about the moments that you really want to have that that guest interaction. Um, and it even goes down to you know, uh, client recovery goes down to not just when you see, you know, a little kid dropping his ice cream cone, which is amazing because McDonald's down here is an incredible organization, probably the best in the world. The McDonald's in Guatemala is not like McDonald's anywhere else. It's incredible because of the people starting on it. When your kid knocks over his milkshake, a new one was given immediately. But here, you know, in the restaurant business, you know, in any service industry, something's going to go wrong at some point. So what do you do? Well, I write a letter to people, or if I'm there personally, I will comp the dinner if something happened, but we have gift certificates. And so if I know something happened, I'll write a letter and send the gift certificates. And if they don't want to come back, they don't use the gift certificate. I don't lose anything, but I give them another chance to give us another chance to become their preferred restaurant. So um, my, you know, talking about somebody comes to your house, they're your guest. Well, I've taught my employees that, you know, and my employees are from, not from the upper classes, and there's a heavy class system in Guatemala, but, you know, I said, if somebody comes to your house, you're going to take out the best and give them a good bottle of whatever, a whiskey or whatever, so everybody in this place is your guest. And Ritz-Carlton calls them internal ladies and gentlemen, and the client is, or the client, or the guest is, the external ladies and gentlemen. And the Ritz-Carlton in its inception would let every employee spend up to $2,000 to make some guest happy, whatever the situation was. Yeah, the Ritz-Carlton, another amazing uh, guest experience when you do get the opportunity to go there. Um, You know, one of the things I have found in Guatemala and all of my friends that have come to visit me during my time here, have, have talked about what you just mentioned in a way, the Guatemalan hospitality. People here are so welcoming. They, they just treat you like family as soon as you meet them. I just have really found the, um, the friendliness of, of the Guatemalan people uh, just amazing. And everybody, like I said, everybody that has come to visit me has said the same thing without me prompting them. They, 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 that's one of the, they love the beautiful scenery here in Guatemala, but it's really the people that they really gravitate towards. With that being said, one of the things that um, we Americans in the United States, uh, I think, have a, you know, we have a really high standard for customer service, uh, especially in restaurants, especially the kind of service that you get uh, in restaurants. Um, and so a lot of times when we go abroad, we're really disappointed by the lack of the attention, especially when you're sitting you know, in a restaurant and things like that. Um, and so that's actually been one of the things that people have commented on that, oh, you know, the service here isn't really as great or this or that at, at different places. However, at Jake's, you got you were definitely an exception. Uh, I come here. I'm attended to. I was here last week sitting with you at the bar and there was an American here from Texas 
and he actually commented. I guess he's been here maybe once or twice, and he said, oh, you know, uh, I forget the, the, the woman's name who was tending bar that night. She is so attentive. This is so unlike my experiences in most restaurants in Guatemala. But uh, one thing, uh, tell me, how have you trained or taught your employees uh, to to kind of have this great uh, customer service that really really stands out anywhere, but especially in Guatemala. Well, I've taught them my philosophy and my caring of people. And you know, early on, I you know I asked them a question, "Who's the boss?" And they all said, "You don't, Jake." I said, "No, not me. The boss is the is the client or guest. If they're not happy with our work, they're going to fire us. They don't give us money." And so they understand, I mean, listen, you go to work, you're working to make a living, you're trying to make as much as you can. Uh, we give them the focus, we give them our, our passion, our focus, what we want, what do we want is in the business, we want money. And what do we give in return? We give them the best experience, the guests the best experience they can get in the restaurant. So everybody is, is aware of the the how we treat our guests everybody is concentrated on taking care of our guests because i mean we're in business uh this is not it's not a charity and and they're receiving for what they're giving so it all works around um that and how jake tell me a little bit more how do you invest in your employees well, we, we take care of them like a family. Um, we're concerned about their well-being, the well-being of, of their families. Uh, my partner had a, uh, has another business where they needed to have a laboratory and a doctor because it was a, they had 20,000 employees. So they wow. needed to take care of their people who got sick with COVID quickly. So. All during the pandemic, if somebody, they woke up not feeling well, we sent them free of charge to get tested. If they had COVID, we gave them all their medication needed and they went home and they were, everyone came back. All through the years, I would invest in my clients to send them to the best doctors because the public health care is not that good in Guatemala. I'd rather spend the money out of my pocket and get them back to working a lot quicker than they would if they went to the public hospital where they could die. Yeah. So we treat our people like the way we want to be treated as guests also. Well, and I, I assume that means that you are able to keep them uh, here as well if you want to, uh, but it sounds like you Yeah, you I've employees for over 20 years. Yeah, were you, did, were you forced due to the pandemic um, with, with the, I know Guatemala was locked down for quite some time during 2020, almost all of 2020. Um, did you have, were you forced to have to lay off any employees because of the pandemic? No, we uh, actually, we kept everybody alive. Uh, the ones we didn't want back, it was, you know, we said goodbye, we gave them their, their severance, but we kept pretty much everyone. Um, That's great. And we started delivery in, in April of 2020 in the pizza and in Jake's in May. So we were able to give everybody their salaries 
I ate a lot of peanut butter sandwiches. So people were still, uh, were people still generally working a lot because they had to be here uh, making the food? And, and, and well, the kitchen get, was working. The yeah. waiters we maintained, uh, they weren't working. We gave them jobs. Whoever had a motorcycle, we gave them a job as delivery guys. So pretty much we kept everybody working. Um, Guatemala has a large informal um, business community. Everybody worked. A lot of people work from home, but Guatemala, we did pretty well. Guatemala never stopped. We're very industrious people here. Yeah, I, I've noticed that since I've been here. Very, very industrious people. So speaking, let's, let's talk a little more about Guatemala. Recently, uh, you came and spoke to my entrepreneurship and innovation class at the Universidad Francisco Marroquin. So thank you very much. My students, I know, really appreciated that and gave a lot of great feedback about what they learned from you. One of the I took a few notes. Of course, I was sitting in the back of class for this one. The uh, as I tell um, some of the people at UFM, the teacher is always a student. So it was nice to be uh, an actual student that day and listen to you. Um, but you said to uh, the students that Guatemala is one of the wealthiest places I've ever seen. Um, you also told them there are great opportunities in Guatemala and you don't need to go anywhere else. So what did you mean by these statements? Well. Uh, the students at the Marroquin are, are privileged in the, in the sense they could go to the Marroquin and everything they need to do to have a great business in the world is right here in Guatemala. I'm working actually with a group of people um, from the states in developing uh, si economic situations here in Guatemala so we don't have to have these migrants taking this dangerous journey up to the States. Actually, my waiters make as much, or my cooks make as much as someone that leaves Guatemala, goes to the States, lives in a house, in a room with 10 people, after taxes, makes less than they make with me here. So... And the cost of living here is so much less. Yes, and they're in their, their own country. This country has everything. We're an incredibly wealthy country. We are blessed in Guatemala. We have so, everything. So let me, let me stop you there. When you say you're a, uh, Guatemala is a wealthy country, you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm an average American uh, sitting in the United States right now, listening or watching this, and I'm like, wait, hold on a second. Uh, the media images I see are of, uh, you know, tens of thousands of, of people from Central America, including Guatemala, coming, over, coming and trying to cross the border every week. Um, and, and, and then, you know, you're sort of seeing the, you know, you're you hear about the poverty. Uh, I know people who are missionaries in the United States or that work at, for, or maybe volunteer at different NGOs that come down to Guatemala, things like that. And so Guatemala, in, in a lot of people's minds, is a place of a lot of poverty. Um, and so how, uh, so what do you mean when you say there's well, a... Well, wealthy, a, we have incredible natural resources. I mean, if you spit out a watermelon seed in the ground, you're going to have watermelon in, in three months. But also, Guatemala, it's, it's a very difficult situation because you have two distinct groups of people. You have the indigenous that still maintain their rich lifestyle. And... Culturally, yeah. culturally rich. Culturally yeah. rich. And unfortunately, Guatemala is still a mercantile system and not a free market system. Uh, eventually, people realize that if you raise people's standards of living through their hard work, they will become your clients also. So, I mean, my employees can eat here with a 50% discount. They bring their families in for, for their birthday or whatnot. Guatemala is in, it, it will be changing. 
and we're trying to create more opportunities and through the, the iPad, the iPhone, the, the smartphone, people are learning. A lot of my employees are from indigenous villages that they grew corn. And now they have a trade, they're restaurant workers, or there are a lot, there's a lot of migration. And so Guatemala will indeed be much wealthier in the sense it will trickle down. And you did say that Guatemala will change, and Guatemala has changed, right? I mean, since you've been here, there's been a lot of changes. Um, and, I mean, we're sitting here in La Estacion in Zone 10, a beautiful shopping center that uh, this could be in, you know, Boca Raton, Florida or something. I've brought, uh, I'll give a shout-out to my friend Bob Rubin, who was also on a, on a previous episode of the Agents of Innovation podcast. He came down and visited me um, in May, and we, were, we went to a lot of different places. And, and one of the last places I took him in Guatemala City was Cayala. Uh, he, and he sat here and he said, Francisco, and he's from Boca Raton. He goes, I feel like I'm in Boca Raton right now. You know, it's just, uh, it was a definitely a different feeling than, say, being in like zone one in Guatemala or something like that, um, but in Guatemala City. But anyway, um, what, what, one of the other things I wanted to ask you was, um, wh so what are some of the biggest um, differences you've seen or experienced between the United States and Guatemala in your time living in both countries? And, 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 and with that... I'd like to ask you if you could mention, you know, what are maybe one or two things you really love about each country? Well, the United States is where I was born and raised, uh, you know, growing up in a New York City area. We didn't really know racism. Um, everybody was pretty much, we had friends from all walks of life. Uh, the, the, the work ethic is wonderful in the United States. Uh, Guatemala has a tremendous work ethic, but one of the problems you'll find all basically around the equator or in impoverished areas around the world is that the, the underprivileged have this concept that the reason the people who have money are wealthy is because we pick the fruit first. Uh, and that's not so. You know, they don't realize that the education, the hard work, the dedication, so that's a, a commonality around the world that the reason we have wealth is because we picked the fruit and there's nothing left for them. They don't realize because you don't starve in Guatemala. Essentially, you, the fruit growing falls to the ground. You eat the avocados, mangoes, whatever grows all over the place. But it's a, it's a mental poverty, which is what we have to uh, conquer, uh, that we are wealthy here. Yeah, no, that, I think that's a really great way to look at it. Uh, I can't remember the episode number off the top of my head, but I had a, a guy named um, uh, Will McDowell uh, on my podcast um, who works with a, he's actually the head of an organization in, in Dallas called Behind Every Door, and he talked a lot about the scarcity mentality that, that is not just among the poor, it could be amongst wealthy people oh, yeah. too. You know? I have a friend that's extremely wealthy, much wealthier than I'll ever be, and... Um, of course, unnamed, and I go to his house, and I, oh, my God, you know, live, enjoy, <laughs> because right. it is a it is a mindset. Uh, being wealthy is a mindset. It is. Uh, so, speaking of mindset, Jake, uh, you and I have talked a bit about different uh, ways that people can build the entrepreneurial mindset. I know that you are a big um, reader. Uh, like me, what are some of your favorite books and some books that you might recommend to people listening uh, on the podcast? Uh, one of my favorites is Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, The Greatest Salesman, Og Mondino, That Ever Lived. 
Oh yeah, I'm uh, reading that now. Jack Canfield, uh, Success Principles, how to, uh, how to get where you want to go from where you are right now. Listening to Tony Robbins, John Maxwell. I mean, they're great thinkers out there. They've always been great thinkers. And uh, they're leaders. And that's what I've really learned. My partner, my partner Federico, is an incredibly forward thinker. And he's brought so much to the table here in the restaurant, so to speak, so much to the table, as developing our internal leadership. And with total respect to everybody who works for us, our ladies and gentlemen that work for us. So a few times, there's a book I didn't hear you mention that I've heard you mention a few times, uh, and the author is Deepak Chopra? Deepak Chopra, Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. Yeah. Which um, you need to study quite a bit. I mean, it, there, there are things that can help you right away, but the more you learn, the more you learn about, I guess, metaphysics or how the world, the universe actually works, the more you can glean from it. So it's part of a mindset, but uh, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success is an amazing book. Now, uh, Jake, I know that um, you're, uh, we can see you right here, for those that are watching, uh, you're smoking a cigar, so you and I uh, are both cigar aficionados. Uh, I'm not smoking one just yet. Be, well, I'm not interview. either. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, it's, my pacifier. It's, just, it's just in your, uh, it's just in your hand. Look, but anyway, come. I know that. Uh, so that's that, that's a that's a typical ritual you have, right? You like to smoke cigars. But what are some of the other daily rituals uh, that you have that help uh, that help you? Well, I wake up quite early. I wake up between four and four thirty. I make my coffee. Guatemalan coffee is. I don't care about Juan Valdez. That's how you can wake up at four or four thirty. Guatemalan coffee is by far one of the top 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 coffees in the world. So, I have all the varietals in my kitchen. I make a cup of coffee. Uh, I read. I do my I do my personal meditation, and um, I just put my. It's the only time of day I have to myself is in the early wee hours in the morning because once I get to work, my time is not mine. When did you start those rituals, like the meditation and the reading and waking up early? <clears throat> when I was 18. Wow, wow. Okay, that's that's incredible. Well, I think that just shows uh, your success. So speaking of your success, uh, uh, my students asked you these questions, and I thought, th I thought you had some really interesting responses. So um, I'm going to have just a couple here last questions for you. Uh, what... Um, You've had a lot of successes in your life, I can tell, but what is uh, maybe what is one of the, the, your biggest successes in life? Uh, my wife. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be 70 in a week, a week from today. And uh, if there's an old saying, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself, but I'm still in pretty good shape. My restaurant, my art, my relationships, in life, not really counting <laughs> marriages, but uh, um, just, you know, I think if you can realize, realize a point in your life where you have the realization and the peace in your life, even if it's five minutes before you kick the bucket, you're, you've done pretty well. And, uh, you know, I've had a very interesting life, not necessarily the easiest because I've not always been the smartest, but I'm really happy to be alive and talking with you, Francisco, and hope I can impart something to your 
the people in TV land. And uh, <laughs> well, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure getting to know you, and uh, I think you're a pretty smart guy. And I tell you, uh, so you, you have some some level of humility here, uh, at least left left here at uh, at, at your um, ripe ripe age. Uh, but uh, one of the other things my students asked you that I thought was interesting um, is what is uh, what was uh, maybe one of your biggest failures, and and maybe what have you learned from that. Uh, biggest failures would be sort of a, uh, a mindset of making a big hit quickly and and sort of retiring, you might say. Um, and I've made some bad decisions and some uh, business dealings. And I guess, you know, nothing, I mean, you're lucky in life because you're prepared in life, but usually, it takes a lot of time and development. There's no quick fix pretty much to anything in life. Um, some of my failures have been basically on a personal level, uh, personal level getting involved in businesses that didn't work out because I trusted somebody. Basically trust yourself, keep your nose clean and do the right thing and study and work. So uh, Jake, um, <laughs> what is uh, maybe the Maybe this will be the final question here. Um, what's some, some parting advice you might have for entrepreneurs, especially uh, in Guatemala? Uh, Mila, uh, realize what you possess internally. Uh, never give up, keep learning, keep reading. I find in Guatemala most people don't read which is tremendous loss that you have. Uh, reading is not a big cultural um, time spent, including my kids. One is starting to read and is very impressed with his reading list for the summer. But Guatemalans, especially the young people, are not reading. Uh, every, all the information they get off the phone or the tablet. But there's so much accumulated. And part of the problem of this present generation coming up it's the, the canceling of all knowledge accumulated through history. And if you don't have that, you're going to repeat the same mistakes that people repeated through the millennial. So read. Um, just keep enriching yourself. Don't give up. I mean, there's no such thing as failure. You keep trying, figure it out. And you'll eventually you'll hit upon it with the dedication of heart and mind and soul, so. Well, those are great uh, pieces of advice. And you know, one thing I've noticed too, yeah, I feel like maybe that's not just a Guatemalan thing, uh, especially young people these days not reading. Like there's, it's amazing. I, you know, sometimes I think about, I was, I was some years ago, uh, maybe, uh, maybe a decade or so ago, I was in uh, Virginia and I went to the home of James Madison you know, who lived in the late 1700s and early 1800s, and obviously many point to him as the father of the Constitution. And I was in a room in his house, and the, the guide said, you know, in this room, in the winter before the Constitutional Convention happened, which, by the way, he didn't even know there was probably going to be a Constitutional Convention. They were living under the Articles of Confederation at the time. There were problems with it. And James Madison and some of the other founders, uh, they were really students of history and he said the guide said in this room over that winter James Madison read like 70 or 80 books or whatever it was I mean in one winter and I was like thinking to myself first of all that's impressive if somebody did that today secondly 
how did he get those books? Seventy bucks. How did he get? How did he get all those books? And he read some of the top books in history. Like he went back to Plato and Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas and all sorts of books, right? Study Montesquieu, current current day books for him. And I was thinking, imagine. I don't know if these guys would be dumber with the smartphones. Or if they would be like, wow, look how much access to information I have. Look what I can learn on YouTube. Look what I can learn on podcasts, you know, audible books, all these sorts of things. I just wonder, you know, if we would be a, if they would be uh, smarter people or dumber people because maybe these phones are kind of dumbing us down a little well, bit. Well, with my employees, especially in the kitchen, uh, since I never went to culinary school, uh, the, the YouTube is amazing. When I want to learn how to do something, I go to YouTube and I have them going to YouTube also. You want to learn something? It's right in your hand, right in your back pocket. Go pick up the damn phone and learn. Yeah, I think what it is, technology gives us opportunities. It also gives us distractions. It depends on how you want to do it, right? I mean, you wake up in the morning, instead of probably looking at the phone, I could think of one of my earliest podcast guests, a good friend of mine, Dan Lesniak, top realtor in Washington, D.C. area, Virginia. Um, you know, he's the author of three books. He's done like a dozen Ironmans. Um, and the guy said, you know what? Uh, I don't look at my phone until about 7.30 or 8 in the morning. He wakes up around your time, 4.35. He goes for a run. He does some training. He does some meditation, maybe do some reading. And he's got clients. He's got lots of clients. He's got 100 employees now. Um, he's got four kids right? <laughs> and a wife. So, so for him to be able to, hey, turn that off, and I'm not going to turn on, he's able to put those distractions away. He, he chooses you know, what to do at that time. So, But anyway... Um, uh, so you mentioned the, the reading, and then uh, I think you know a lot more people could definitely be doing that. It's something I, I always uh, uh, try to suggest. You know, one of the other guests I had on my podcast in 2020 was a soccer player named Chris Mueller. He plays for the Orlando City team, and he just put out a book this year. Um, but one of the things we talked about on that podcast because he started a book club as a as a major league soccer player, and he said how much information people are giving us in books. I mean, and we talked about how how much knowledge we can steal from people. You know, years of people's knowledge goes into one book that's like 200 pages. And in just a few hours, we can steal all that knowledge. So there's a lot of information, uh, hopefully a lot more people listening to this, whether they're in Guatemala, the United States, or other places, will think about, you know, how to invest in reading and invest in themselves. You know, I know you're noted as one of the top chefs in Central America, and it's, it's great to see that you've been able to bring uh, a lot of influence Let me here. correct you. I'm not a chef. I'm a flavor engineer. A flavor engineer. Well, that sounds tasty, Jake. It's almost lunchtime. Um, I want to just thank you for welcoming uh, me into uh, your restaurant here many times, including today, uh, and for sharing your thoughts um, with others here on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Thank you for giving me the time to uh, think back over my long life and career, and it's a pleasure meeting you, Francisco, and, and the information you're giving to Guatemalans, these young kids in your courses at the university. Francisco Marroquin. So um, you can write to me uh, on Instagram, I'm, whatever. Yeah, so what I'll do is uh, in the show notes, uh, if you're listening to this on, say, Apple Podcasts or anything, um, or uh, also on YouTube, I'll put, I'll put some information here to Jake's Restaurant. But you could pretty much just Google Jake's Restaurant, Guatemala City. Um, you'll see uh, this character's face uh, on, as part of the logo. On uh, Jake's New York Pizza and Burgers. Yeah, great places. And if you're visiting Guatemala, uh, please come stop by. Tell Jake you heard him on the Agents of Innovation podcast, of course. And uh, I'm sure he'll treat you even extra special 
but he treats all guests great. Exactly. Thank you, Jake. Bye.